people are always reckoning. People are always trying, no matter how overwhelming the odds may be, people are always trying to fight back. Greetings from the room formerly known as my dining room, and welcome to Recall This Book. I'm Elizabeth Ferry, and I'm here with my co-host, John Plotz. Hello, John. Hey, hello. And we're delighted to welcome today's guest, Lawrence Ralph. Hello, Lawrence. Hi, great to be here. Uh, Dr. Ralph is here as the third uh, installment of our series on global policing, where we try to look at policing and police violence from a variety of angles and in a global perspective. He is Professor of Anthropology at Princeton University and the author of Renegade Dreams, Living with Injury in Gangland, Chicago, and in 2020, The Torture Letters, Reckoning with Police Violence. I would start by saying that this was a timely book, except that one of the sad lessons of the book itself and of 2020 is that this is a topic that's been around for a long time and doesn't seem to be going away. Perhaps at least the public discussion of it is growing and we hope a sense of shared outrage that will persist beyond putting a sign on one's lawn. Uh, so perhaps Lawrence, you could start us off by telling us a bit about the project and the book. Sure, I'd be happy to. My uh, kind of introduction to the topic of police torture came when I was working on my first book, uh, Renegade Dreams, which was about uh, gang violence in Chicago. And obviously the, the question of gangs and, and gang violence has to do with policing and surveillance in urban communities. But I didn't go in depth in that book uh, about how young people especially were policed in Chicago because I quickly found out that that was an enormous topic with enormous history of its own. And one of the reasons why I found that out was because when there was an incidence of police violence in which a young person was shot, people often made the, the claim that if nothing happened uh, about Burge and the torture ring, then nothing would happen uh, about the young people who, would who were shot. And this was mm -hmm. in you know, 2006, 2007, 2008, nine, mm -hmm. before the kind of burgeoning of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I had always had an idea that I wanted to look at uh, the torture cases and figure out who this person, Burge, was that people kept mentioning mm -hmm. in Chicago. And, and so the torture letters really centers on uh, 125 Black men who were tortured in police custody under uh, police commander John Burge, who controlled Area 2 and Area 3. Um, uh, police precincts in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I kind of follow what happened to the torture survivors, but also the activism that occurred in the wake of those torture cases that happened in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We have to engage with the particularities of that community and really think about the problems they're facing. And that always stems from how people are already grappling with their own problems. Right, and assuming right. that people recognize there is a problem and then they're grappling with it as a kind of precondition for the work because 
if they don't feel it's a problem, then who are we to say that it is a problem, you know? Mm -hmm. But obviously, you know, when it comes to something like police violence, it's a, everybody knows it's an issue. It's a long historic issue. And so entering that space entails dealing with the history of how people have been grappling with that issue for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's yeah. a context, actually, learned to ask you about the genre choices for your own writing, because, you know, obviously one of the things that stands out is the letter decision. Um, and but not just, you know, your decision to write letters, but also to think about public letters, which I was just thinking it's such an interesting quality because on, on one one feature of letters that we think about is their particularity in terms of personalized recipient, but you're kind of flipping that model around. In fact, when Elizabeth and I were talking, she had a wonderful line. I thought she said, it's almost as if you're hiding one genre inside another with your with your letters. So can, can you talk about that decision in terms of the, the encounter with the problem that you're describing? Yeah, I mean, I think in, in the spirit of um, grappling with what people feel is the problem, uh, you know, one of the, the first questions I always ask when I in, embark on a research project is, um, you know, assuming that we're going to address this social issue together, right? Uh, you know, I think the first step is to, um, to see if people are interested in grappling with the social issue with me and allowing me to be part of their process in their community and grappling with the social issue. But assuming we've already established that and um, we've decided to that we will work on this problem together, I always ask, you know, who do you want this, you, who do you want to make aware of this issue? Like, who do you feel that really needs to know about this problem? Mm -hmm. And it, when it came to, to police violence in particular, um, it struck me that no one really cared about what academics thought or scholars thought about it. You know, that was the least thing from their mind. Um, you know, whereas I think other issues, there was a sense that people were like, when you write your book, make sure you, 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 you tell them that we're like this, you know? Like there was other sense that there was a, a, a academic public that wasn't getting it. Mm -hmm. And that people wanted them to know the, the truth of it. But in this project about police violence, that sentiment wasn't really there. The sentiment was that, okay, you know, police officers need to know this. Politicians need to know this. Uh, another generation of people needs to know this. And so I really thought seriously about that. And why are these kind of same characters coming up in terms of, you know, needing to know this history of police violence? And how can I reach them? Like what vehicle can I use as a scholar to reach them? And that's, that's 
kind of the genesis of the idea of letters and open letters because, you know, the thing about letters is that they are very um, direct. They're to a particular audience. And you have to think about why the audience needs to know a particular thing and who wants them to know and why you're writing this letter and uh, what is uh, the point of it. And I think when you're talking about torture, it can very easily go off the rails where you, you, go, you cross the lines into something that's voyeuristic, something that's sensational. But I found that when my message was very uh, poignant and direct, I was telling people at each instance what they needed to know. And it kind of assuaged that, um, that feeling of voyeurism uh, that I was very worried about and very careful to address in the book. And so, yeah, that's the primary reason why I uh, kind of picked letters. And they were different because they were open letters in yeah. a sense. Um, but open letters are often like more polemical mm -hmm. than yeah. uh, the, the kind of letters that I was writing. Mm -hmm. So they were really a kind of intimate open letter that um, pointed people to a particular history. Uh, and, and I hope that together, all of the letters will kind of illuminate the larger landscape of police torture, not only in Chicago, but uh, transnationally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe this is a good moment to bring in the second text that we were, uh, we decided we'd uh, bring into conversation with your book uh, because it's, it's also a letter, right? So the, the text is um, Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, Lawrence, you suggested this. Uh, can you introduce the book to our listeners and tell us why you chose it? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think the other reason why letters are important to me is because it's, there's a tradition uh, in uh, African-American literary tradition of kind of writing letters to uh, loved ones uh, to kind of warn of the hazards that they might face. And I think that there's a resurgence among this tradition uh, ushered in by Between the World and Me, but of course it, it, it has a longer history uh, in Baldwin mm -hmm. um, and uh, The Fire Next Time. And, you know, that goes back to the reckoning that we opened with, you know, thinking about adversity and the, you know, one of those famous quotes from Baldwin is that, uh, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed unless it's faced. And that's mm -hmm. the, the kind of reckoning that telling something that they need, some, that telling somebody something that they need to know because their survival depends on it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that being an act of love. Yeah. And I think between the world and me is uh, is the epitome of, of that tradition. Right. And so um, 
in that way resonates with what I'm trying to do in the torture letters. Mm -hmm. Because it's a letter that's addressed to his son, an open letter that's addressed to his son. Right. Yeah. Thinking for a second about Coates's book and the quite pessimistic way in which he describes the question of hope, he's asked by a, or one version of hope, let's say, he's asked by a reporter, you know, do you have hope? And shown a, a kind of a sentimental picture of a, of a policeman hugging a young black boy, I think. And this is um, kind of the beginning of part of his ruminations on this question. And, and, you know, so hope is this complex thing that relates to something about optimism. It relates to something about despair. And you, you clearly are addressing this in your book and you address it in the letter that you write to um, Muhammadu Ud Slahi, the author of Guantanamo Diary. Can you talk about hope and despair and how those relate and how you work with them? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, this is, this is, I think, a little bit of a divergence from uh, where I go with the open letters and, mm -hmm. and where Coates goes. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there was this, that um, debate between Coates and um, Cornell West. Cornell West, right, a couple of years ago, I think around this issue of hope. Mm-hmm. In a way, I mean, I think that there's a way in which Coates's work, and this was uh, Cornel West's point, there's a way in which the scale of the violence and the historic, um, the, the length of the violence and the historic scale of the violence and the, uh, just the domination of police power can seem like wholly determining in, in a mm -hmm. way that um, there's just an annihilation of life. And no matter what you do, mm -hmm. you can never overcome it. And I think there's a way that you can read Coase as a concession to that. Like mm -hmm. he can see that that is the, it's, you know, that's always been the purpose of um, American system of governance and that will always be. And right. you know, there's, there's nothing besides that. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a way in which that is attractive to people in the same way that torture is attractive to people in, in a kind of voyeuristic and sensational way in which people actually derive some kind of sense of power and pleasure from um, seeing domination, mm -hmm. right? Hmm. And this is juxtaposed against a history in which people are always fighting back. People are always reckoning. People are always trying, no matter how overwhelming the odds may be, people are always trying to fight back. So, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like I have to also um, talk about that. And that's part of, 
again, my conception of injury where I have to talk about the potential for repair, you know? And for me, that is uh, talking through these issues with um, someone like Mohamedou, who uh, is tortured on Guantanamo Bay by a Chicago police officer. Mm-hmm. And he has a, a radical sense of optimism. And right. yeah, I, you know, I'm taken aback by his radical sense of optimism for the other reason that uh, it's, you know, seems individualistic. It seems in one's own power to like will the strength to overcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do recognize how understanding that can be a tactic and, and a strategy for uh, fighting against oppression in the long run and also making different survivors of police torture visible to each other, you know, as a way to dismantle uh, the American empire. So when you say understanding that, you mean under the understanding of one's capacity to continue to be hopeful? Yes, and, uh-huh. and, and, but in a real practical sense too, in terms of just like what you did to remain hopeful. Right. Like, you know, when I'm talking to Muhammad, I'm like, no, on an everyday, like, what did you actually do, you know? Right. Yeah. And so like, he's talking about how he, he, he you know, kept track of the days by uh, reciting a certain uh, passage of of the Quran because he Mm -hmm. memorized it. So he knew that if he recited a certain amount, that would be a certain amount of hours. And and therefore he took, kept track of the days that way or how he, um, they didn't want to want him to know what time it is. So he, you know, he would ask people, you know, his interrogators for uh, particular things in ways that they would reveal their wrists so he can look at their watch, you know? So these are like literally ways in which he survived. And so I think those actual tactics are important um, just to know. Uh, And, uh, and, uh, and not to underestimate. Right, not to underestimate. So there's like the the theoretical or the abstract notion of hope, but then there's the everyday practice of hope. But even when we just look at Chicago, I think that um, in terms of hope, I think what the torture survivors in that movement has been able to attain is like pretty remarkable. And in the sense that they're using the language of reparations. They got, they want a reparations ordinance right. in 2015. And that was really landmark because, you know, the way that we deal with um, police violence in this country is often through settlements. And what those settlements often do is to stop victims from then sharing what happened to them. Right. But this reparations ordinance wasn't only about individual compensation. It was also about collective resources, 
uh, and it included um, like a torture justice center where people could get counseling and included job training and, and education for the torture survivors and mm -hmm. included a mandate that the history of the torture cases be taught in Chicago public schools. And mm -hmm. so I think those kind of resources and like having redress on a collective level, I find hope in that as a model for how to address something like police violence. Yeah, the, the limitation of that is that it doesn't ask anything of the police themselves, right? But puts mm -hmm. the onus on the community to address their own problem, provides resources to do that, but mm -hmm. it doesn't ask the police to 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 address uh, their own complicity. Right, right. In some ways, that seems. I mean, that that sort of movement to a collective model rather than an individual kind of um, settlement. It it reminds me a lot of. Um, Truth and Recon Reconciliation Commissions that we see in other countries, mostly. Right. Um, I mean, that in and of itself, I, I hear what you're saying about the sort of individual or, or, or even departmental accountability of the police, but that in itself feels hopeful to me because it is also kind of undermining a sense of American exceptionalism that you know we don't we don't commit human. It's other countries where they commit human rights violations, or it's other countries where you have to have these kinds of um, national sorts of reckonings. Um, so yeah, and that's been a big part of the the torture cases. Um, mm -hmm. That that comparison internationally in those models of truth and reconciliation in in the United Nations, um, because when these cases uh, first happened in the eighties. Well, they first kind of gained recognition in the 80s, and then they found out that they had happened earlier in the 70s. But when that happened, there was a lot of debate, as you can imagine, about whether this was just brutality or actual torture. Mm -hmm. And it's been a lot of work for us to say that, no, this is police torture. But that came from um, the international comparison and, and comparing what actually is happening and what devices people are using to torture people and how that compares to yes. what's happening in other spaces. And, you know, the first set of comparisons happened in the nineties around dictatorships in Latin America. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it kind of died down. Those comparisons died down. There was an attempt within Chicago to, to erase and, and, and mute those experiences mm -hmm. and classify them as mere brutality. But then um, there was the, uh, you know, war on terror. There was a resurgence of that language of torture. Mm -hmm. And again, another resurgence uh, when it came to uh, Guantanamo right. and the atrocities that happened on Guantanamo. And so this is not divorced from what's happening internationally at particular periods of time. Right. So that's been vitally important in the in seeing torture as torture in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But Lawrence, I was going to ask um, whether do you 
is is um, Hannah Arendt's work helpful to you at all? Like, do you think through like some of the banality of evil argument, the the account? I was thinking, especially towards the end of Eichmann in Jerusalem, there's this, um, again, not optimism, but hopefulness she has about how stories are gonna emerge. You know, the impossibility of keeping the truth down. And I can read that and in one light, think of it as so naive, like her conception of the truth as just this like little gold brick that you find somewhere hidden. Yeah. But on another level, yeah, she's got a faith in reckoning as well, I think. Um, and I, I was just wondering if, if she's somebody that you bounce off of or think, think through. Yeah, I thought a lot about um, Holocaust studies in general uh, when looking at these cases, because I was, I was really interested, especially in the beginning, about around witnessing and what the mm -hmm. role of the witness is. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, how to convey the unimaginable as a mode of witnessing. A lot of that work has been done in, in, in Holocaust studies. Right. But also uh, the work in which you think of um, the potential for there to be many Holocausts and not look at it as a... Um, a a an event that can never be surpassed right. but to ask the question what is to prevent this from happening again mm -hmm. and i think that emerges you know out of holocaust studies and i really was interested in that question when it came to chicago police torture like what is that what is to prevent it from happening again and a lot of that has to do with the banality of evil in the sense that there's an aspect, a pervasive aspect of complicity. And I talk about like the open secret of police mm -hmm. torture. And it's, it is the case that people knew about this the whole time, but mm -hmm. you know, they also knew that to say something about it uh, would mean that they would risk their careers, uh, risk their lives in some cases. Mm -hmm. And there became incentives for people to move up the ranks. Uh, and once they moved up the ranks, once they were a district attorney who had heard uh, someone say, I've been tortured and they ignored it, then that district attorney becomes a judge. And when he or she is a judge, they don't wanna hear any torture cases because right. they themselves are complicit or the people who they work for are complicit, right? And mm -hmm. so there's a way in which it then uh, becomes a coordinated effort to conceal the truth. Just like a tiny point, but like from a literary studies perspective, I really appreciate that account of what you can get out of Holocaust witnessing studies, because I think for too long, the discourse of trauma has seemed, you know, so predominant in terms of defining the unspeakability around this sort of terrible, mm -hmm. you know, terrible crimes or, you know, sort of ge genocidal like crimes that we forget that there's lots of ways to talk about the silencing of witnessing or the suppression of witnessing, which does not involve trauma because trauma is like a psychological aporia, which is, you know, definitely there and it real, but it isn't the only account for why silence would spread, you know? And I just think it's important to keep those different um, you know, like something like the Arendtian account of 
of the difficulty of witnessing and the logic of why witness would be suppressed or silenced, but it's a non-traumatic account of what that is. And I think that's, yeah. And, and it gets away from what, as you were saying, it gets away from the notion of the singularity of the Holocaust as if you treat the Holocaust as this one, you know, blockage rather than understanding, you know, Holocaust type events that are, you know, that are pervasively present and have to be recognized. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, and there's a resonance there between uh, African-American studies and, and, uh, and slavery in which that kind of unspeakability of the horrific well, on the one hand, there's that unspeakability of the horrific, then there's the seeing it as the ultimate event that nothing can compare to as well, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, for me, I really, you know, thought carefully about that because on the one hand, there is a perspective that it's so horrific that you can't really describe it. And to, to try to describe it only plays into a kind of pornography of violence. Right. Where the, the, when it comes to the legal aspect in like truth and reconciliation and the, the practicality of having to tell the stories in the law through the court of law, um, it it's a different thing because people have had to say to say what happened. They've had to show the scars on their body. They had to describe the instruments of torture, and uh, in order to like gain recognition. Uh, so yeah. there's this balancing act between like how you describe that process and how you, you know, do pay careful attention to the pitfalls of uh, describing suffering in a, in a, a non-critical way. Mm -hmm. And so again, th this is why the letters for me became important because they're a way to mediate that tension. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. And, and actually there's a, there's a good connection there to the final part of our um, show, which is about recallable, recallable books and other things. Um, and the one that I had thought of, um, which is Frederick Douglass 1876 speech on the unveiling of the Freedmen's uh, Monument, um, very much connects to this question about how slavery is represented and how, um, you know, what might be some of the pitfalls of representing it. Um, the reason I thought of this uh, speeches because it also has a kind of one genre nestled inside another because it's this you know commemorative speech. These sorts of speeches are supposed to be unqualifiedly praising, and yet you know Douglas um, and we'll we'll have a link to this on our on our webpage clearly hates the monument right yes. because it has this you know slave kneeling, you know, while Lincoln kind of extends his benevolent white hand over him to save him. And, um, and he manages to both kind of convey that, um, but especially to convey within the genre of the speech, to convey the history 
highly ambivalent history of, of Lincoln's um, relationship to slavery, relationship to, um, to enslaved and non-enslaved black people, the, the various kinds of reversals that he, that he did and, and sort of kind of give a you know, very um, incisive um, history about this at this kind of, kind of hidden inside the commemorative speech. So that's what made me think of it, but it's also connected to these questions about um, uh, facing up to history, to the issues of whether, you know, how does erasure happen or, or, or get undone? So, um, so that was mine. And um, I don't know, Lawrence, do you, do you have something you'd like to talk about as in our recallable somethings? Well, I mean, um, yeah, I'd be happy to talk about the, the um, strange fruit. Mm -hmm. and, and Billie Holiday's uh, rendition of Strange Fruit because uh, for me, not only is it a kind of historic song in the way that we think about uh, state-sanctioned violence in the U.S. Um, and what kinds of bodies are disposable and the history of um, African descended people being disposable mm -hmm. in the US. Uh, but also for me, it merges two critical metaphors in my book, which are uh, the torture tree on the one hand and the black box. And mm -hmm. so uh, the black box was a uh, device that uh, John Burge used to, to electrocute torture victims. But I also conceive of the black box as a kind of reservoir in which uh, knowledge gets obscured. And people say things like, well, we can't know about it because there's no witnesses. We can't ever know. Mm -hmm. uh, what actually happened because it's his word against the torture victims and and to to just repeat some of the things we mentioned earlier I am interested in exploring those silences so mm -hmm. what does the black box teach us and in this case literally it connected torture survivors through the scars it left on their bodies so people were able to say this mark Mm. is a mark of ex is electrocution that could only be have occurred from attaching this device to my body in this way mm -hmm. and other torture survivors were allowed or able to show the same thing so it allowed for that uh and so there's the black box as a as a torture device and as a um a kind of epistemological apparatus in that it mm -hmm. produces certain kinds of knowledge about torture. And then there's the torture tree, which I discussed, uh, that for me is about uh, a kind of structure of torture in which people rise through the ranks and are allowed to uh, hide torture in plain sight mm -hmm. because they become complicit. And in Strange Fruit, Billie Holiday is talking about a tree 
that is a torture device, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the yeah. tree that lynches black people is the torture device. And, uh, and so there's that resonance there and the resonance of the way that this history is always with us and that mm-hmm. this history is also foundational to the black experience in the US. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you, Lawrence. Um, this has been a yes. really amazing conversation. And I'm sure that our listeners will have lots to, to follow up on and much of that will be on our website. So to conclude, recall this book is The Brainchild, John Potts and Elizabeth Ferry. It's affiliated with public books and is recorded and edited by Plots, Ferry, and a cadre of colleagues here in the Boston area and beyond. Our music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, Fly Away. Sound editing is by Claire Ogden and production assistance, including website design and social media is done by Nye Kim. We appreciate the support of university librarian, Matthew Sheehy and Dean Dorothy Hodgson, the Mandel Center for the Humanities at Brandeis and the Mellon Connected PhD grant. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. You can email us directly at ferry or plots at, or at plots at brandeis.edu or contact us via social media and our website. Finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast joy. And you may be interested in checking out past episodes uh, in particular, two episode, other episodes on policing and police violence with Hayal Akarsu and Daniel Kreider and David Cunningham, and on the economic origins of mass incarceration with Adenir Usmani. So thanks very much, Lawrence. Yes, thank you, Lawrence. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Here's a fruit for the crows to pluck for the rain together for the wind to suck for the sun to rot for the tree to drop is a strange and bitter.